Mark, it's good to see you. Would you open us in prayer tonight? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love that you show us each and every single day. Thank you for the privilege uh, to, to be here. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you through your word. Dr. Snowberger, Lord, again, thank you for this time. I pray that we would uh, listen intently and that uh, we would learn and obey, Lord, as we, uh, as we conform to the image of your will. Christ, and we pray. Amen. Okay, here's quiz. Okay. Number one, the ethical basis for common grace is the infinite love of God. Boss. So what should it be? Justice. The atonement. Yeah, so the, the, the issue of injustice has to be addressed, and so there has to be atonement as the basis for it. Yes, so. Okay? God cannot simply just be kind to evil men out of just the sheer volume of his love. There actually has to have there has to be an ethical basis whereby his justice is is appeased in order for him even to extend the smallest amount of grace to anyone. Okay. So which of the following is not a purpose of common grace? A. And why is that? Not everyone's Okay, so so that I mean that that's evidence that it's not common grace. But by definition, common grace is in the realm of it is not in the realm of of redemption. Redemptive grace is special grace, and so therefore, by definition, it doesn't it isn't in there. And you're right, and there's and and there's the reason because it doesn't extend to all. It's not to all in common. So define conscience for me, someone. It's an awareness or an ability to determine moral right from wrong. Okay. Very good. So that's, uh, yeah, moral awareness of right and wrong shared by people in God's image that prompts people to either do right or wrong respectively. Okay, so very good. And that's, we described it as something of a mechanism whereby we're all born. Um, I, 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 I list the Holy Spirit sort of as the, mediator of the conscience at the same time we recognize that it's something that's sort of written upon the heart to use the language of Romans 2 uh, so in some sense it's not a direct work of the Holy Spirit but rather a mechanism with which we are born and which we are able to tinker uh, and actually so that it actually sends false signals number four then the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is always effectual that is, it always results in repentance. False. 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 Okay. And we looked at passages where people did not respond favorably. We talked particularly about the, uh, the church discipline passage. If your brother doesn't listen, if he doesn't respond favorably, when you convince him, convict him, uh, why then uh, bring two or three others with you? And then the whole, the whole church comes to bear. Uh, because sometimes it is ineffectual. Uh, the effectual work, this is your bonus point, so what is the effectual work of the Holy Spirit that causes people to respond favorably? Regeneration. regeneration. Very good. So the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the mind. Very good. So 
Just give yourself a star if you got that one right, too. Okay. Any questions about last week that we want to uh, revisit? Okay, well then, we'll go ahead and begin here on page 26 uh, with the work of the Holy Spirit in Revelation. We're still talking in terms of his broader works, his works in the universe at large, creation, his his address of the problem of sin. Uh, Here again, we're talking about something that's uh, broad. He reveals God uh, to us through multiple means. Uh, We can start here with the idea of general revelation. Uh, Perhaps it's a little difficult for us to see that the Holy Spirit is the agent of general revelation. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, it is, is, you know, by his activity that our minds are made aware of, of the information that's out there. We learn it from the creation, what God is like. But Really what we're focused on tonight is is specific works of the Holy Spirit with special revelation. I'm going to start with the work of the Holy Spirit with the prophets, so Old Testament prophetism. Uh, then we're going to talk about the, whole, the Holy Spirit's work in revealing our Lord Christ. And I think we're, we're going to find that that's a, a fairly important discussion here to have. Uh, in fact, we're going to talk about here the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness to the to, to the identity and messiahship of Jesus Christ. So he, he works there. And, of course, he also is operative in the inspiration of Scripture. We don't spend an enormous amount of time there. We could. Uh, but uh, since that's, that was covered in Doctrine of Scripture three semesters ago, we'll probably only give it a light treatment here. But I want to talk here tonight about the idea of prophetism, uh, what the Holy Spirit did to allow prophets to speak authoritatively for him. Uh, and this is a little bit broader uh, than the written scriptures. What is inscripturated is a, is a, is a subset of prophecy, uh, the, the word of the Lord is broader than the pages of Scripture. So sometimes, in fact, you, you read the uh, references to the word of God in the Scriptures, and it's talking about often more than just the Bible. Uh, it's talking about anything that the Lord says. So the, the word of God, uh, whether that be the oral statements of the prophets or of Jesus Christ uh, or of the apostles, uh, but uh, or the written, uh, it, it makes no difference when we're talking about the word of God or the word of the Lord. Uh, but we're talking about this broader work then tonight, firstly here, uh, the Holy Spirit and prophetism. What does it mean to be a prophet? It's an important question because we want to know what the prophets were doing, uh, what we should do with what they say, uh, what is the nature of what they say? And I think we'll probably have to broach uh, the, the question of, <coughs> are there still prophets uh, speaking today? And how could we know one way or the other? Okay, so let's let's begin by defining what a prophet is. I say here, a prophet is an authorized spokesman for another person. Now, normally we think of an authorized spokesman for God, but we actually have... Some occasions in Scripture, 
in which uh, a, a prophet speaks on behalf of a false god or a demon or another spirit. We find in First Kings 22, there was a prophet who was speaking the words of another spirit, uh, so not the Holy Spirit. And so one can be a prophet of, of someone other than God and be a spokesman for someone else. But he never speaks for himself. That's, that's the distinguishing factor about what a prophet is. A prophet never speaks for himself. In fact, we're going to see this uh, routinely stated throughout the scripture. The prophet never speaks words of his own origin. His, 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 uh, the words that he says do not originate with himself. Instead, he speaks on behalf and for another. Now, the means by which the Holy Spirit does this is sometimes a bit of a mystery to us. We just don't know. Uh, most of the time, uh, we sort of assume that the prophets heard a voice. Uh, perhaps sometimes they began simply speaking thoughts that were inserted in their minds. I uh, just finished up a sermon series on Habakkuk, and he said he saw the oracle of God, which is actually kind of a uh, you know, a paradoxical statement because an oracle is a word, but he saw it. So probably what he's saying there, he, 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 he received this information by means of a vision. So he saw it and heard it. Um, and so uh, the, the means by which the Holy Spirit communicates is not always clear to us. But the emphasis is not so much on the, on the, on the process whereby the prophet receives the information, but rather the product. Scripture simply tells us that the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and perhaps deliberately vague language or expansive language that could cover a number of means. But the, the statement here is that they were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak words that were not of human origin or subject to human interpretation. In fact, this is Peter's argument. Uh, the, whole, the, the word of God... The, the scriptures that he receives are better, they're superior, uh, because they are not of human origin. Uh, they, they are not cleverly devised myths. Uh, the, holy, the, the, the scripture came not uh, by, uh, uh, by, by a prophet's own interpretation. Rather, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so this material is not of human origin, nor is it a reflection of a human's interpretation of some experience that he had. Uh, this is important for us because uh, there, we're going to have to talk about a question here. There's a fellow by the name of Wayne Grudem, some of you are familiar with the name, uh, who argues uh, that uh, a New Testament prophecy is different than the rest of the prophecy we see in the Scripture, and that there actually can be a mixture of human interpretation with the word that is heard, and so there actually might be errors in modern prophecy. And so uh, I think we want to start our, 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 uh, our pushback against that by the statement here in Second Peter, which says, Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit without contributing in any sense to what was said or what was written. So by this sudden work of the Holy Spirit, Kuiper explains, the prophet now possesses the divine thought with this result 
that he is, what, that he is conscious of the same idea which a moment ago existed only in God. Might add here that the prophet not only possessed the divine thought, but also expressed the divine thought in words that perfectly reflected the divine intention. Okay, so that was the purpose of a prophet and that uh, what's what he was doing. Sometimes he did speak the tell the future, but that's not the that's not the emphasis in prophecy. The prophecy is that the, the, the emphasis is that he's a spokesman for another person. Much of much of what we see under the heading of prophecy in the Old Testament is not forward looking at all. In fact, if you if you are familiar with the breakdown of the Old Testament canon, the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles are considered the, uh, well, particularly the Samuel and Kings are the early prophets. You say, well, there's nothing forward-looking there, very little. Uh, but it's still prophecy because the one who wrote this material was writing for God in an authoritative, in an inerrant way, and so it's called prophecy uh, but within the, uh, within the Jewish canon. Okay, so let's look at this Old Testament prophecy here and see if we can't visit a few texts here that tell us a little bit about it. We find, firstly, that the prophetic impulse was wholly ab extra, that is, wholly from without. One could not study to become a prophet. You know, you don't go to seminary to become a prophet. You can can go to seminary to become a preacher or a teacher, someone who can handle the word of God better, but you couldn't go to school to become a prophet uh, because this was something that simply came to you. You didn't contribute in any sense. You couldn't be a good prophet or a bad prophet. You could simply be a prophet of, of God. Okay, So the anointing or empowerment for prophecy is never depicted in Scripture as self-induced or a response to natural stimuli. So 1 Samuel 3, 1, in those days the word of the Lord was scarce. There were not many visions. Well, why not? Were people not studying enough? No, well, the, no, God didn't reveal himself. Amos 8 predicts a day. Days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord. Well, I will send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. So, uh, so, so the reason prophecy stops is because God stops speaking. You can't, and no person can stop the word of the Lord if he wants it known. Um, and uh, Amos 3.8, I think in principle, says this, the sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can help but prophesy? Okay, when, when God speaks through a prophet, the prophet really has no choice but to blurt out the words that God has given to him. So it's not something that he can produce, uh, but nor is it something that he can suppress. He simply speaks the words of God. So nothing a prophet did could either stimulate the prophecy or suppress it. As a result, we may observe long gaps in which prophecy was absent in the Old Testament. However, when the Spirit of God willed prophecy, it was irrepressible. When he spoke, who can but prophesy? So the Spirit is thus seen as the absolute sovereign in the prophetic impulse. If he wants someone to speak God's words, he simply makes it happen. When the prophetic impulse, secondly, intersected with the human mind and intellect, prophecy was never naturalistic. 
naturalistic. In other words, there was not any sort of natural phenomenon at work. This was a supernatural phenomenon. Moses said to the Lord in Exodus 4, when, when, when God appoints him to be a spokesman for him, Moses said, O oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. You know, I, 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 I would not be a good prophet. I can't speak well. And what's the answer? Well, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Okay, so it, it has nothing to do with the ability, uh, natural abilities of the prophet here. God simply puts his words in their mouth and they, they blurt them out. Note also that New Testament prophecy similarly involves information that could only be received supernaturally. So there's uh, uh, prophetic statements that are made here uh, of information that could not be known naturally. And so, you know, Paul will say things like, if everyone stays on the ship, then no one will die. Well, that's really an unusual thing for a shipwreck. That's not, not normally what happens. And uh, yet he's able to make that statement very confidently because he was speaking as a prophet for God at that time. Thirdly here, the prophetic impulse rendered the human agent a conduit, a conduit for direct revelation. Incidentally, that's part of the reason I would suggest that uh, that in the in the New Testament there are actually female prophets. Uh, that perhaps is a little bit of a surprise to us, in you know, in, in view of some of the patterns that we see in the New Testament, uh, where women aren't given permission to to teach men uh, within the context of the assembly. And yet we find, for instance, Philip had four daughters who were prophets. And you say, well, what gives there? Why, why can they be prophets and not teachers? Well, the, the, it seems here that, to me, part of the answer, and perhaps the whole of it, is that they're, they're not necessarily teaching. They're not taking the material and manipulating it and putting, you know, putting it together in packages to teach it to others, but actually they're simply being a, a, a conduit for God. Uh, God can use men. God can use women. Uh, hopefully I'm not making a comparison. God can use a donkey if he wants, right? Yeah. Right, in the Old Testament. So, uh, so it, 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 there does not seem to be that restriction here. Uh, on uh, on on prophecy, like there is on teaching within the context of the church. Okay, so uh, the 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 prophet is a conduit for direct revelation, and to be a prophet is to speak immediately for God and as God. You're standing in the place of God when you speak prophecy. Acts four sixteen here in principle, Aaron will speak to the people for you. It will be as if he is your mouth, his mouth is your mouth, and that as if you were God to him. And uh, the statement here is, Aaron is your prophet. Okay, so, you know, fast forward from the conversation where, where Moses said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not able to be a prophet. He persists in this. Finally, God gets a bit upset with him and says, fine, I'll give you a prophet. Nonetheless, you're my prophet. Moses is God's prophet. Aaron is Moses' prophet. So, uh, so God, it will be as though Aaron is speaking your words 
and as though he was your mouth, and you will be the mouth of God. Okay, so there's 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 this this line here where nothing is lost, nothing is added to what God has to say. Uh, the uh, Moses is the prophet for God. Aaron is the prophet for Moses, and so Aaron is now speaking precisely and exactly the words of God. Second Samuel twenty three two. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Okay, so now the implication here is my words are God's words. There's a certain confusion between the two uh, because they are uh, saying identical things. There's that passage again in Second Peter chapter one. No prophecy did not have its origin in the human will. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there was no there's no contribution of the prophet to what he said. It is only the words of God that come out of his mouth. Fourthly here, only a false prophet would produce his own message or to distort the message given to him. Probably should have put a little bit more here in in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is sort of the introduction of uh, prophetism in the Old Testament. I'm not sure why I didn't spend a little more time on it, but perhaps if you want to look at it, uh, remember this is this is what this comes in the aftermath of Sinai and we find that the people are terrified of God because of the shaking and the and the, uh, the, the the thunder and the lightning and they're, they're quite terrified by what they see on the mountain and so they make a request of God we don't really want to hear God speak to us why don't you go ahead and have someone represent God to us because we're frightened and so God actually acquiesces. He says, yeah, it's, a, it's good, but, <laughs> but, if I'm going to give you these prophets, you have to treat them and their words as though they were my words and, you know, bring to mind the thunder and the lightning and the shaking because those words that he says are my words. Listen to what he says here. The Lord said to me, what they say is good when they request a prophet. I will raise for them a prophet up from you, like you, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks, and that's how he puts that, my words that the prophet speaks, I myself will call him to account. But there's a false prophet, a prophet who claims to speak for me or speaks for another. So a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything that I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of another god, he must immediately be put to death. Okay, so tells us a little bit about prophecy here. If someone actually prophesies in the name of God or claims to be speaking for God, and what he says is not true or does not come true, then that person is to be stoned. I probably could put in here, uh, is it uh, in, in, in Isaiah as well, uh, the statement is made that there's a, there's, a, there's a group of people who are advising the king, and the question is, how do we know whether they're speaking the truth? And the, and the response is what? Well, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have not the light of dawn. Okay, so if, if someone comes along and speaks something that doesn't correspond with the scriptures, or which does not come true, or if that person 
deliberately speaks and openly speaks for another god. He's to be immediately put to death. Uh, so uh, this is this is this is very important to us. So only a false prophet would produce his own message or distort the message given to him by God. Jeremiah twenty three says as well. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the false prophets say. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. I have heard what the prophets say, who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? For what has straw to do with grain? declares the Lord. I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues, and yet declare the Lord declares. But you must not mention the oracle of the Lord again, because every man's own word becomes his oracle, and you so you distort the words of the living God, the Lord Almighty, our God. Okay, and that's, my friends, is a central issue with revelatory gifts today. Uh, if they're not true, they're not from God. In fact, you better close your mouth and don't claim them to be the oracle of God uh, or you are subject, I think, effectively to the same punishment uh, that was was meted out in the Old Testament. Okay? Questions here on the nature of prophecy? It's pretty serious stuff. I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have an <clears throat> acquaintance from college who, you know, had dis- discussions with about, like, you know, him and his wife very much believe that these, these gifts are still around today. Right. They talk about prophecy more as, like, truth-telling and things like that. But... What made me think of this was the verse before Amos 3.8. It kind of caught me off guard. I was talking with him, and he said, well, you've obviously never read the book of Amos, because in Amos 3.7 it says, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And I was kind of just like picking this verse out of the blue button. You know, I was like, well, I don't have to look that up. I don't know. You know, but I was, as an argument, of like, oh, no, no, he says it right there. He does nothing without telling his you know, so right. I, I, if, if I'm if I'm understanding the context there, he yeah. never he never acts supernaturally. Mm. I think is the point. He never acts supernaturally yeah. without explaining it, and 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 that's and that's why Paul picks up that very same theme in First Corinthians fourteen. Yeah. That if if someone speaks in the assembly, speaks these words, or and and there's no one there to interpret, it's not from God, mm. because God doesn't operate that. If God's going to do it, he's going to explain it. Okay, so I think that's exactly the point in Acts Yeah, that makes sense. That's very helpful. Yeah. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Thank you. Other thoughts? Okay. Letter B. The prophetic anointing effectively countermands depravity, resulting in necessarily inerrant utterances. So... Now you say, well, how could someone possibly speak inerrantly for God? Well, the prophetic anointing is the mechanism whereby depravity is overcome. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or does not come true, then that message is not from the Lord. The Lord has not spoken it. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so don't be afraid of him. And so the point being here that any time a prophet speaks for God, what he says will come true. And this is the benchmark of genuine prophecy that's held very, very much in high regard in the in the Old Testament. There's Isaiah eight twenty. That's that passage I spoke to to the law and to the testimony. Acts seventeen eleven. Remember the uh, the Bereans were more noble than those at Thessalonica. Why? Because 
they, 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 they tested what Paul told them and, 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 and measured it against the existing scriptures because that's what people are supposed to do when someone purports to speak for God. <clears throat> Check them out. Paul's, Paul's claiming to speak for God. He's an apostle. But they were very noble because they actually said, you know, this guy claims to be a prophet, but we should check him out just to make sure. And for that reason, Paul actually says that they're more noble because they did that. Fortunately, and certainly, uh, Paul was exonerated in that quest, but it was a good practice that they, that they engaged in. So as such, anything that the prophet said was normative and equally as authoritative as scripture. It wasn't scripture necessarily, but it was equally authoritative as scripture because it was the words of God, which is which is the warning that Moses gives, or God gives through Moses, in Deuteronomy 18. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I will hold him to account. And again, the context is everything there, because... And they're saying, I don't, I don't want to hear God speaking. Let him speak through a, through a medium, a, a, a prophet. And God says, okay, but you have to treat him like God then. Whatever he says are God's words and you have to treat them as such. Jeremiah 26, this is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my law, which is what I have set before you, And if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, though you've not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and this city an object of cursing among the nations of the earth. So anyone who does not listen uh, to the prophets or heed them, it's as though they were disobeying God himself, God's direct words, or the words of the law that were written down. Okay, so that's Old Testament prophecy. It's fairly straightforward. Uh, the testimony of the Old Testament is abundant and consistent and clear. But uh, any questions? Because now we have to turn the corner uh, to New Testament prophecy and see if there's any difference. Okay? I'm going to make sure we have Old Testament down. Because I think what we have in the New Testament is a continuation of the same idea. I don't think there's really any reason to think that New Testament prophecy is any different even though there are some who would suggest as much. Okay, so there's no forthcoming evidence that New Testament prophet differs in any way from Old Testament prophecy. There's some materials uh, in your bibliography that point in that direction. Like Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy is placed on par with scriptural revelation in terms of its authority and normativity. Okay? So if if the prophet speaks, you obey. Like Old Testament prophecy, Old New Testament prophecies were subject to scrutiny as to their inerrancy. We already saw that there with the Bereans. But also we see in 1 Corinthians 14, that should be this should be our response. If someone claims to speak in the assembly in tongues or gives a word of prophecy or something of that nature, he's to be tested. And uh, 1 John 4, 1 actually comes out quite plainly and says, test the prophets. Test those who claim to speak for me. See if what they say is true. 
Like the Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy is subject to disappearance. It will cease. Now, there's some real debate there on 1 Corinthians 13 when it will cease. Uh, I'm, you know, there's, there's, uh, I'm no, I don't want to get into that that whole debate there, but uh, except to say this, that prophecy is subject to ceasing. Uh, so there's, it's, it's shouldn't be a surprise to us that just as in the Old Testament there were long windows without prophecy, that there would be the same thing in the present day. Appeals to Ephesians two that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets as a basis for distinguishing two kinds of prophets infallible apostle prophets and infallible ordinary prophets really have been demonstrated to rest on careless use of grammar and really smack of special pleading i'll tell you why why grudem wants to make new testament prophecies fallible is because he wants to elevate the scriptures to a place of primary importance uh, but his solution there, I think, is 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 terrible. Uh, we end up having in the church fallible prophecies, words from the Lord that might not be words from the Lord, uh, which to me is just a worthless thing to have. Uh, something that might or might not be the word of the Lord, but do with it what you want. Seems like a, a foolish thing to uh, to to suggest. Okay. Following then are implied for prophecy in modern church. One, since a prophet speaks immediately for God and without emendation, there's no changes made, it's impossible to reduce the idea of prophecy to the foretelling of sermons developed by careful interpretation and freshly packaged for contemporary audiences. Okay, Prophecy in the New Testament only deals with direct revelation. Okay, so some, Sometimes... It's, it's hard. To, it, it, it's in the vocabulary of the church at large, and it's almost impossible to get away from it. But uh, there are some people who speak of pro- preaching as prophecy, or particularly powerful preaching, or dynamic preaching. That's prophetic preaching because he really gets into it. Uh, but that, there's really no basis in Scripture for speaking in the, that language. Uh, it, it's you cannot you cannot you cannot take the idea of homiletical repackaging of a message here and putting it into an outline and explaining it over the course of of, of a half hour or so on Sunday morning. That's not prophecy. Uh, don't don't confuse the two. Uh, you know, your pastor is a, a very very well qualified man, but he's not inerrant. And occasionally, very occasionally, but occasionally he'll say something from the pulpit that's a mistake. And that doesn't mean you have to take him out and stone him. Now, if he claimed to be a prophet, you would. <laughs> but that's not the case, because that's not prophecy, what he's doing. That's preaching. Uh, that's homiletic. So, so don't get the two of those confused. I know that's, that's part of the language of the church at large. I'm not talking about this church, but the church broadly and uh, it's actually incorrect okay so this leads sort of to a question here is there some sort of power uh, that we can get uh, when we're you know those of us who preach or speak uh, is there some sort of 
you know, some, I, I call it a homiletical anointing here, where the Holy Spirit comes upon people so that they speak more or better than they ordinarily would. And there's a, there's a again a long history of of that idea, really, in really starting with Calvin and particularly in the Reformed uh, branch of of the pure. The Puritans particularly were big on this idea of powerful preaching, uh, which is somehow aided by sort of the direct hand of of God upon the preacher. What do we do with that? Well, I say here that the Spirit's ordinary work among believers is described in terms of enabling or empowering is conceited. We do receive strength from the Holy Spirit. We receive power from the Holy Spirit. You look through the New Testament, you, you find that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, um, if someone who is applying his gifts is supposed to do it in the power that God supplies. So there is, there is a realization as we read through the New Testament that there is the need for us to uh, exceed our limited, depraved selves. So what is the mechanism whereby that happens? Well, I think there's a lot of people, particularly since the rise of Pentecostalism and and, uh, Keswick theology, have this idea that as they're walking along, there will be some sort of a power from without, from outside of them, that will suddenly make them super Christians. Uh, But that's not typically how that works. In fact, I'm, I'm inclined to say it's not ever how it works. Uh, rather, what we have is a strengthening in the inner man, right? So when you get saved, you receive regenerative life, which actually is an enablement. Okay? It enables you to, to overcome the sin that is in you. And as you cultivate that, as you work hard, with spiritual diet and spiritual exercise, you become strengthened in the inner man. That is the power that we should be seeking. And it's not a power that we, we just sort of wait for it to just sort of drop on us. It's something that we cultivate from within. It's not, it, it is, it is from without. In fact, it's, I mean, it's, it's the union with Christ that gives us this power. Nonetheless, it's ours too. We actually cultivate what is there through the ordinary means of grace, through prayer, uh, through the reading of scriptures, through the fellowship of God's, uh, God's, God's people, and all of those things serve to strengthen us. And so if you want power from God, don't sit and wait for it. Cultivate it. Uh, because by the means of ordinary means of grace, that's how you get power. Okay? Same thing is true of the preacher. Okay? So, yes, the Holy Spirit does empower faith in his regenerating impulse. He empowers sanctification by his indwelling work. He enables Christian service by granting gifts that we possess. All these activities are described variously as as occurring by the Spirit. What is at issue here is whether there is some sort of special work of the Spirit, like that received by the prophets, for the specific task of preaching and gospel witness. The reason some people think this is because of a couple of texts here I want to list. Uh, Matthew 10, 29, when they arrest you, don't worry about what you'll say or how you'll say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So, 
that's taken by some to mean, okay, you know, you you just get out there and start talking, and and you know, when it when it gets tough and you don't know what to say, God will take over for you. John fourteen twenty six, the Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and will remind you of things that I have said to you. So that's sort of this reminding work of the Holy Spirit that some people, there's, we've already looked a little bit at this this passage earlier, but uh, the idea that some people take from this is that when I'm when I'm out there witnessing for Christ, uh, you really don't need to review what you're going to say because when you're out there. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit will just put the verses in your brain. Well, if you've been out there enough, you know that <laughs> you, you're, you're always at a loss for those verses, if, unless you do prepare, right? Acts eight, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea, etc. Romans 15, I will not venture to speak anything, Paul says except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I said and did, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, for Christ has not been known. Okay, so the idea here is that missionaries here, perhaps, uh, have a special attending work of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit comes upon them so they can do more than they ordinarily could. 1 Corinthians 2.4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, uh, lending the idea, perhaps, that uh, there's a power that attends simple preaching that is overwhelming. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Now, the foregoing supply a formidable case for a special work of the Holy Spirit anointing, but I think all of them fall short in my estimation. Note the following. Several of the passages above, particularly Matthew 10, John 14, and Romans 15, seem to have special application to the apostles. Okay? Uh, particularly when we look at John chapter 14, the reminding work of the Holy Spirit is said in a very narrow context. It's uh, really a, a, a statement here about the, the production of the Christian scriptures. Uh, he says here, you know, basically put your pens away while I'm speaking to you right now, because later on, after you're able to receive this information, I will remind you of these things and you will testify uh, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so it's a very narrow context here. Uh, the, the apostles are going to remember what Jesus said to them personally while he was with them. These are the kinds of phrases that are there. And so I think we're talking here specifically about the uh, production of the Christian scriptures. Um, and, and, the, and, and particularly in Acts 1.8, the power that's received uh, that is received at Pentecost is special endowment, not something that we would ordinarily expect in the modern day. And then a couple of other passages, so another another category here, uh, particularly 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Thessalonians 1, reference not the power of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the preacher, but the Holy Spirit's work attending the hearer. Okay, 
In fact, this, I think this is per, fairly important for us to look at. I mean, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, he's saying the power is, you know, is, is, is not, um, in my slick presentation. Uh, so he, he doesn't want to use, use some of the rhetorical techniques of the, uh, of the philosophers of the day here. Because if people responded to that, then they would be responding to him and his rhetorical skills rather than to the message of the scripture. So he determined that his message was going to be not poorly delivered, but rather a simple message that was a cause of stumbling, right? Uh, the, to the, the crucifixion, to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the, uh, to the, to the, to the Greeks, this is foolishness. Who would, who would glory in that? The, the capital punishment. This seems very strange. But rather, the power of God here is not so much in his words or even in the gospel per se, but in the hearer. So we speak a message of wisdom among the mature, such that in verse 14, the man with the spirit doesn't accept this without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God because they're foolishness. He can't understand them because they're spiritually spiritually appraised. But the spiritual man, the man who has the spirit resident within him, who has within him the regenerative power to embrace and to welcome the message, that is the power of the gospel. Okay, it's not so much a power that attends the preacher. It's a power that comes into the hearer so that he responds favorably to the word of God. We're talking about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Same thing is true there in 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. In fact, I think it's kind of evident there in the the context. We know, he says, that you are brothers loved by God and that he has chosen you Why? Well, because our gospel came to you not with words, but also with power. Okay? Now now think about that. How do we, how does, how does Paul know that these individuals are in fact converted? Well, because the word of God came with, to them with power and with deep conviction, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how he lived, we lived among you for our sake such that you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering and welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit and became a model of behavior. So how does so how is it that Paul is able to know that these people are true truly converted? Well not because his message was not because his preaching was so powerful, but because the power of regeneration caused them to accept those words and to welcome them, uh, to model them, to embrace them, and so on and so forth. So, so the power here of the uh, of of the Holy Spirit is not so much a homiletical anointing, but rather the ordinary regenerative regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. So while there is a rich historical tradition of the expectation of special empowering ministry of the Spirit for preaching and witness-bearing, the Scripture testimony seems too scant, really, to build a case for this concept. And so I'm, I'm somewhat uh, skeptical of the idea. Any questions or thoughts that you might have? 
Okay. So back to our outline there. Since the prophet speaks immediately for God without emendation, doesn't add anything, without error, and with an authority equal to that of Scripture, any prophet who does otherwise is guilty of distorting the words of the living God and mixing straw with grain, which are crimes with capital import equal to that of false prophecy. So anyone who comes along and does this is not prophesying at all. Uh, he's speaking for himself and therefore is, un- is, is subject to great censure. So it really renders incredible unbelievable what what Wayne Grudem says here that New Testament prophecy may similar, summarily be redefined as simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind which does not have the authority of the words of the Lord I, I, I look at that phrase and wonder what in the world would we want that kind of information for Information from the Lord that is not true, that's been added to, that's uh, a fallible report that might or might not be true and is not like the word of, not, not like the scripture. But yeah, maybe there is some of that going on, but what good would that kind of prophecy do for the church? That's, 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 it's unbelievable to me, uh, that, uh, one could promote a kind of prophecy as described as he does there. Does that make sense? Does that that follow? Okay. Thirdly here, in keeping with its intrinsically temporary nature, New Testament prophecy seems to be connected with the foundational aspects of the church. The church is built on the foundation stones of the prophets during a vulnerable period of incomplete revelation and the need for confirmation. And once that period was completed, uh, the the scriptures were uh, completely completed and given to us in all of their uh, in in all of their perfection. And there was no really any more need for prophetic data because we have everything necessary for life and godliness, everything we need to thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work. And so, not only is prophecy not seen but it would actually be something that would be unwelcome because we already have everything that's necessary. Okay? I'm going to chip away at this idea sort of throughout this this whole class here. Um, it, it might get old to you here, but uh, we'll sort of chip away at this this idea of, of continuing gifts of the Holy Spirit, whether they be prophetic, or whether they be other sorts, such as tongues and, and miracles and such. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll study the whole topic a little bit later, more formally, but we're going to sort of chip away at it as we work our way through the course. Okay? One last question in this section here, uh, before, we, uh, uh, before we break for the night, and that'll be this text box. Is there an apostolic anointing? We said there's a prophetic anointing where the Holy Spirit comes upon a prophet so that he speaks directly for God without any emendation, inerrantly and such. Is there something parallel to that that occurred, say, in the book of Acts with the prophets, with with the apostles? Well, Wayne Grudem again suggests that when prophecy became an everyday commonplace, became unexceptional, 
in the New Covenant community, it became necessary for God to create a new class of church leaders who would speak uniquely for God in the early church, the apostles. Now, I'm not going to concede Grudem's view here, and neither does Larry Pettigrew, but he argues that there is an Old Testament precedent for a work like the prophetic anointing that occurs with the apostles. A work that sort of includes prophecy in its scope, but probably is a little bit broader than that. So something more akin to the theocratic anointing, whereby the Holy Spirit aided the leaders of the Old Testament community, the kings, in the administration of their particular dispensation. Okay, so... What we have the apostles doing is not only speaking for God, as prophets might, but in some sense ruling the new body here, the, the, the church, sort of directing it on its course in its, in its, in its earliest days. Pettigrew, Larry Pettigrew, dubs this work the apostolic anointing. The idea has some Merit. I've got some, there's some baggage with it I'm not completely happy about. Nonetheless, I think the idea is, is a, is a sound one. So what is this apostolic anointing? Well, firstly, I say it's anticipated in the farewell discourse of Christ in John 14 to 17. Uh, again, uh, oftentimes these chapters are thought to be directed to the whole church in a direct sense, uh, but this seems to be a a, 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 a a message and then followed by a captive with a prayer for the apostles proper. Um, he seems to suggest that their words are going to become his words. Blessed are those who who believe your words as though they were believing my words, because they are. And so this farewell discourse seems to be directed towards the prophet, uh, the apostles themselves. All this I have spoken while I was still with you. Okay, well, this is not something he can speak to the church at large. This is a rather narrow group. While I was with you, I spoke these bits of information. And the counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father sends in my name, he will teach you all these things and remind you of all the things that I said while I was still with you. Okay, so it's a very narrow promise here that the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside the apostles, remind them of what he said during his earthly ministry. So it's a very narrow promise. It's not a broad promise that we're just going to have you know bouts of remembrance as we walk through life. Same thing is true in John 15. When the counselor comes, he says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me and you also must testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, so again, this, this, this narrows the scope of this, these statements here in John 14 and 15 to the apostles, those who have been with Christ from the beginning, those the, the, who are remembering words that he spoke to them while he was yet with them. Uh, note that the first of these texts anticipates a reminder of material that Christ communicated to the apostles while he was physically with them, and the second restricts it to those who, who had been with him from the beginning. And so this wording is not appropriate to anybody other than the apostles. 
is not a general reminding ministry of the Holy Spirit that helps us when we're out soul winning. Instead, it likely accounts for the requirement in Acts 1 that the apostolic replacement for Judas be one who had been with them the whole time that the whole Lord, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. So, they're, they're, they, they want to replace Judas because Judas, of course, apostatizes and they, they understand that there is a need to replace him and so what are they going to replace him with? Someone who was with us the whole time that Jesus was with us. Okay, that's one of that's that's a necessary component of being one of these apostles. In fact, Paul goes at great length to describe the fact that he is an apostle, but not an ordinary apostle. He's he's sort of an exceptional apostle. He's the only one of his kind, one who's born out of due season, right? Nonetheless, he, in his credentials that he gives there in Second, Second Corinthians, he explains why he has all the qualifications of being an apostle, because he was with the Lord, the Lord did speak to him, and he did, did get his information directly from, from God, he didn't get it from other people, and so therefore he was qualified in a very unique sense uh, to be an apostle uh, who is very unusual. Okay, so he's the least and the last of the apostles, he says, and because of the fact that he is this unusual uh, figure. Okay, so it's an apostolic phenomenon here, this, this, this work of the Holy Spirit, this particular work of the Spirit. And so the parameters of this anointing are very carefully defined. Primary emphasis here is on special revelation. The church would be established under the prophetic aegis of the apostles. Note the language here in John 15 compared to Amos 3.8. The Spirit will testify about me, and you must testify. Just like Amos said there in Amos 3, the sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Rhetorical question, of course, you have to. When the Lord speaks through the apostles, just as he spoke through uh, the prophets, there was no possibility they could do anything other than to blurt out that information. But most narrowly here, this passage here establishes the parameters for the composition of the New Testament scriptures. Dr. McCune calls this a pre-authentication of the New Testament scriptures, and I think it's, a, it's an accurate word. Note the language here in John 14. Okay. Uh, these words you hear now are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things that, and remind you of everything I've said to you. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, but he will tell you what is yet to come, bringing glory to me by taking what from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Now let's compare that then with Paul's discussion of the inspiration of Scripture. He's discussing that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, and he's explaining how he got his message from God. That is, the Scriptures. He says this, no one knows the thoughts of God, knows the language, is exactly the same. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
And we have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given to us, and so we speak it. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but by words given by the Holy Spirit, expressing spiritual thoughts in spiritual words. Okay, so the idea here is that the apostolic anointing then is that permission, that authority that is given by God to the apostles to give to us everything necessary for life and godliness, the scriptures. And so that's the promise that is being made here, that the prophets, the apostles, are going to give us the scriptures, which is why when we uh, talk about the... uh, about uh, canonicity, trying to decide what books to include in the Bible and which ones we should exclude from the Bible. Uh, the first question that, that we always ask is what? Authority. Which authority? Okay, but how would we know the authority? That's the Lord. Well, yes. Uh, who but wrote it, the book? Okay, yes. Who wrote the book? Yes, written by an apostle or a close associate of apostle. Same kind of principle we see in the Old Testament. Is it written by a prophet or one of the wise men? Okay, there seems to be that same, same, same idea here for both testaments. How do you know what the Old Testament? Well, Christ does come along and tell us what the Old Testament is. Nonetheless, there's an emphasis here on the prophets and the wise men. Here in the New Testament, the emphasis is on the prophets, the apostles, and the prophets. These are the ones who give us the word of God. So that's the first line in our questioning as to what books should be included. Is it written by an apostle? Or someone closely associated with an apostle? Or is it by somebody else? So then this apostolic anointing, which God promises to to the apostles specifically, is given then in John chapter 20. John 20, 21 to 23 says, Jesus says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with this he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, this is a rather a strange passage because the Holy Spirit, we know, comes upon the apostles later. At Pentecost, rather spectacularly here, but this is a different occasion. This is well before that time because Christ is still with them. And so the Holy Spirit is breathed out upon. And as I understand this here, this is when they receive their apostolic authority. Some see this as as John's great commission or John's Pentecost, but the context is wrong for that. Okay, it's a closed-door meeting of the 11 apostles in which Jesus himself, on the day of his resurrection, transmits very specific authority to the apostles alone. What does he give them? Well, he sends them, which is the exact language that we see in John 17. Just as the Father sent the Son on his mission, so also the Son would send out the apostles on their mission as his personal representatives as those given the legal power to represent another so as to be the man himself. Ritterboss's description here of an apostle. He expands the authority to bind and loose, which had been previously given to Peter, Matthew 16, 
power of the keys. And now it's expanded here to all the apostles, commissioning their work of unlocking waves of converts in the book of Acts. And we see this occur, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Once these converts are organized into local churches, this authority then devolves upon them, and is ending the apostolic age. This receipt of the Holy Spirit experienced is almost certainly the receipt not of the Spirit's indwelling work, they would have already had that, but rather the authorization of the apostles to be the official spokesmen and representatives and leaders uh, representing God in the early church. So we find that the apostles do receive a special work of power uh, that is unique to them, is not shared. And then, of course, they carried out. First action of the apostles after Christ leaves is to replace the one missing, someone who had been an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ and had been with them from the beginning, which was an essential qualification of apostleship. The apostles' authority is as official spokesman for Christ, was corroborated by miracles that were distinctive to them. This is, these are the, these are the, um, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 speaks about the fact that the signs of an apostle were done. So the signs that we find in the, in the New Testament are just not signs just willy-nilly done by anybody who happened to be a Christian but rather they're done under the aegis of the apostles so narrowly that Paul's able to describe them as the signs of an apostle. They're not signs of a Christian. They're signs of an apostle done in your midst. This apostolic use of the keys to bind and loose is routinely identified as supplying an outline for the book of Acts. This apostolic remembrance of Christ's words equipped them further than to write the Christian scriptures, giving rise to the primary criterion for canonicity. We talked about that, apostolicity. And their foundational role, it's described in Ephesians 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The historical requirements made of their persons, being appointed by Christ, eyewitnesses of his earthly ministry and his resurrection, and the transfer of their distinctive authority to local churches means that there are no more apostles today. There cannot be, because no one could possibly meet the criterion uh, to function as one, as described here in the Christian scriptures. So the apostles seem to have a particularly important role, just as the prophets did in the Old Testament, of transmitting the, the words of God uh, to uh, the people of God in an authoritative and inerrant way and sort of, if I can say, sort of carrying God's purposes along in the dispensations in which they live. So questions on what an apostle is. I, I know there are those who claim to be apostles and Pentecostal community and, and such, uh, but they don't seem to match the description here given uh, by the scripture writers. Any, any thoughts on that? Okay. If not, then we'll call it an evening. Yes? I'm giving a note about a couple of announcements. One says we still need candy for Enchanted Trail, which is one week from this Saturday, October 26th. If you haven't already, please consider buying a few bags and depositing them in the bin near the welcome desk. 
and second, Pastor Ken begins a new series in our first hour this Sunday called God Wins, a study in the book of Revelation. Really good. Okay. Make sure you come to that. Sounds like a good series. Okay. See you next week.